every Wednesday to discuss personal finance, anything to do with making your money work harder for you than uh, it already is working. And it, hopefully, as you start to build up a bit of a reserve, have your money work harder than you can work. And that's the key. That's really the ethos, or I guess at the center of what early retirement and the FIRE movement's all about is figuring out how to get your money working for you harder than than you can work, basically. So if you had a million bucks, if you can get it working for you at 12%, that's 10 grand a month. That's more than most people's time's worth, whether you're a plumber, a teacher, a, you know, whatever. Most people don't make more than $10,000 a month. So that is, is a goal, right? And if again, if you're a high income earner, then you need more money. And you need to figure out strategies to make it work even harder for you. I know people that are doing options trading right now, if you're following like things like GameStop um, lately with the 100% daily returns, people options trading and making several 100% annual returns. I know people doing one to 5% a month. I know someone's consistently doing 4% a month options trading. And so there's lots of different avenues where you can make your money work really hard for you. And uh, I've had this cut for like 10 years, but I'm using it today because it holds like 650 milliliters. Wouldn't look like it holds a lot, but it really does. I'm doing this 75 hard challenge. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm a natty kind of guy, so I don't really take any pre-workout stuff or whatever, but um, I do like protein. So natural whey isolate protein with no sugar, no flavoring. But uh, yeah, I've been doing that and that's been great. I've been doing two challenges, one of which I sort of made up and the other of which is widely well known as the 75 hard challenge. So I've been doing that. I don't know if anyone's been following along, but I've been getting some, some really great results. Like I've actually gained 12 pounds of solid muscle. So that's a, I totally recommend that um, program. Check it out if you're interested in the 75 hard challenge. It's uh, you got to drink four liters of water a day. You've got to do uh, 10 pages of reading and you know, bettering your mind. You got to do two workouts a day. One of them has to be outside, 45 minutes. One of them has to be inside. I go to home gym. We've got the squat rack. So I've been doing the four core lifts the squat, the deadlift, the bench press, and the military shoulder press. So those are what I build my workouts around is those four, and then I do other workouts, you know, depending on what it is that day, right? So as an example, often when I do um, chest, I'll also do calves. And often when I do um, like deadlifts or that day, I'll often do biceps, or if I'm doing shoulders, I might do biceps. So yeah, anyway, um, just a random aside. It's been great to focus on the health aspect too as I free up more time I find myself at a crossroads where I want to spend time growing the business and you know, growing my net worth in various you know aspects. But at the same time, I also just want to enjoy life. And as soon as this third baby comes around, I think I might spend some time traveling, some time just really enjoying things. And that might mean I make less, but that's okay, right? And it's accepting the fact that, that that's okay. And that uh, less money sometimes could mean you know, once you're up past a certain point, could mean a uh, could mean a happier life, depending on how you spend your time. People are jumping on. Nice to finally catch a live. Awesome. Welcome on, Stubot. That's <laughs> your thoughts on GameStop, BlackBerry, and AMC. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm of the belief when it comes to. Anyway, I don't like GameStop as a like. I think it's overvalued as hell right now, but. For people who are in the options space and like to trade options, I think it can make a lot of sense to sell options, like to um, sell calls and to sell um, puts at this time. If you can provide, if you can be the insurer and sell puts, let's say, um, as long as it doesn't get below a certain target, you're okay, right? Your, your put will just expire and you won't have to buy the shares. So 
that could, um, same with call, depending on if you could, and I actually know people doing spread trades, really doing a call and a put, and the break even point is like insanely wide, so you can't lose money. It's like 20 bucks to like 400 or something, you make money. As long as the shares stay between that range, the share price stays between that range, you make money. So it's crazy, people are spread trading right now. There's so much extrinsic value premium associated with the options right now that um, if you're smart about it, you could just live in the spread and take an almost no risk and have like a, I don't know, a pop of like 95% on, on the options trading you're doing. So a probability of profit or a pop of 95% is pretty good. That's like, you know, when you, whenever I options trade, I'm looking to, to beat the coin flip. So as long as the options contract I'd be trading would be greater than 50% probability of me winning, then statistically over a long period of time, I would win, right? So you wanna look at trading things that are, that are gonna give you a good chance of winning. I don't like to take the risks where I can make big amounts of money, but I also don't wanna, basically I don't wanna lose money, right? That's the focus for me. But yeah, uh, next question was, good evening. How you doing, William? D. How to, greetings, Mr. Rosar. Greetings, D. How to. Michael G says, hi, Mike. How do you find businesses for sale and what do you look for in a business you invest in? Hmm. There's lots of places to find businesses for sale. You can go on their local um, listing pages where you can find businesses for sale. You can go on like your Kijiji, your Facebooks, um, your Craigslist. You can go talk to brokers, a lot of realtors that are in the commercial space know of business owners that want to sell. Often buildings will sell at the same time. A business owner might say, hey, I want to retire. I'm done. Um, can you help me find a buyer? So realtors often will, will hear of opportunities. There are realtors who also play in the trading of business space. There are businesses designed with basically like realtor agents that represent businesses. And so you want to contact one of those people if you're looking for a bigger business and you're pre-qualified. There's obviously those websites out there too. Um, um, what are they called? There's a couple of them. I have them on my phone here. I have to look them up. But there's like online Flip King and a whole bunch of other online websites where people sell brands. They sell, you know, um, Shopify accounts and stuff that they've got to certain established points with lots of revenue. But when I look at buying a business, for me, it's about the cash flow. It's about looking at what is the business currently doing from a revenue perspective? Is it growing? Um, what is the current trend? Is it a one-time pop? Is it continual? Where will that go? And then trying to basically forecast that and then hopefully pay for today's um, performance, not tomorrow's. So tomorrow's is free and that's the lift. So I'm looking for to my businesses that have big lifts. They have strong cash flow and big lifts and high probabilities of success. And where there's not a mom and pop um, operation that's reliant on the mom and pop. So when mom and pop are gone, business declines. We don't want a business like that. We want a business that has employees that will run with or without the owners. And those are the hardest businesses to find because those, um, they trade at high multiples. And for the most part, people don't want to sell those kind of businesses. They want to keep them because they don't require a lot of time investment, right? Um, so yeah, that's something that um, I look at when I'm looking at a business. There's so many other factors to look at when you're analyzing a business and it depends on the segment or the industry, but you definitely want to become aware of all the, all the industry knowledge related to that business you're buying so that you can, you know, you can make an educated decision at the end of the day. Those are some things I look for when I'm buying businesses or analyzing businesses. It's the same as when I'm looking at analyzing a stock, um, just the multiples are much lower for a private business because there's less competition and I guess just more risk in general, which you can manage, you can manage that risk. Next one is, have you thought about taking all your money and buying up a bunch of rural but strategically located land and founding your own town? 
will be a fun way to leave your mark on the world, Rosart Town. You know what? It's interesting, actually. I was, I, I get into these um, spaces where I read these, these crazy uh, articles, and I was reading one actually that was linked to a, a, um, a study a friend of mine sent me about income and happiness. I actually shared it on my Instagram page at my Art. If you're following this week, I shared it on my stories. I didn't share it as a, um, a post, but I shared it as a story. So it disappears after 24 hours, but I could post it again for those who are interested. And uh, it basically, they did a study on like a million, a million one hundred thousand people in, in the United States, and they categorized incomes from all the way at zero, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand, all the way up to five hundred thousand in annual income. And this goes in the face of what we've always known to be true in psychology, which was that there was a certain point at which you know income made you happy, and then it did had diminishing returns, where it didn't really add any more happiness the more you had. And the, the magical number was always seventy five thousand dollars a year. And after seventy five thousand dollars. There's not much more happiness. This study like blew that out of the water and was like, no, there actually is more happiness as you build wealth. And there was actually a large amount of perceived statistically significant happiness in the 400 and 500,000 range in income. And I thought that was really interesting that it was not only that people, one of the things was that people perceived that they were happier, like they, they believed because of their success they were happier, but two, like their, their lifestyle, they just reported as being better. Um, so just on average, people were reporting better lifestyles and with COVID that makes total sense. If you're rich and you have a huge master retreat in a lockdown, you have your own sauna, pool, gym, movie theater. How are you affected during COVID? You're not like life's going on. You can, you can keep living your life. Whereas if you're poor and you're making like 50 grand a year, you're an average person. And that's not poor. Let's say, but if you're in the lower half of people, you're suffering when movie theaters shut down and you know, all your favorite things you wanted to do shut down and you're stuck in a house with no pool, no hot tub, nothing. You get nothing but the internet. That, that, I think COVID has created a bigger divide between the haves and the have-nots. The haves really are thriving through COVID. Stock valuations are all-time highs. Um, a, the huge transfer of wealth has been, most of the job layoffs happened to the bottom half of um, wage earners. The top white color all just work from home. And now they're, they have no commuting costs, they're saving time, saving money, and they're working less and they're making more. And all their investments are doing well. So that's what part of what's been driving the surge in the stock market lately is there's just so much printed money and the top half society, all the people chasing fire built these, you know, million dollar net worths and more and more and more. They're gobbling up most of that printed money and, uh, or it ends up in their hands one way or another through the businesses that they're invested in. And it's, it's creating a huge um, societal disconnect, which I don't know where that's going to end or how it's going to play out, but Universal basic income might be might be a result. I'm not saying I like it. I'm just saying that it's likely coming. Um, but crazy, crazy stuff that um, I was reading this research and, and just seeing how, and I'll, I'll link it for people who are interested, but it was a really good study, like well done, and that uh, yeah, happiness actually does increase up to a point of, it looked like unlimited, like at four or $500,000 in annual income, you're happier. Um, I can say from personal experience, you know, being in the lower ranges to the, now I'm in like the top brackets um, from an you know appreciation and income perspective. Life is better. Having more money is better. <laughs> if I didn't have to work so hard for the money, I would say more money is 100% better. Like when we're having a stressful night with the kids, we just go, like now I just go order food, shows up at our door. No stress of having to make dinner. Like that makes things a lot easier. Or like my wife was getting really stressed out about cleaning, so we got a cleaner. I know this is things that like Mike Rosar would never do two years ago, but again, you gotta factor in that I owned a whole bunch of real estate 
when real estate popped. And so I've made millions of dollars in appreciation in the last year. Um, dumb luck. Like I was, I guess I was smart and then I levered up. I, I set myself up to succeed when the appreciation pop happened. Of course, I levered five to one. I prepared myself for that. I built a nice cash flowing real estate portfolio, but I got lucky. A lot of us in real estate, we owned real estate at the right time here in Southwestern Ontario. It's been a, been a good ride. So yeah, I mean, relative to what I'm earning, I'm still super, super frugal. I still maintain like an 80% savings rate or more in retirement. But um, yeah, I mean, I was reading that study and I'm like, geez, I think it's actually true. I think more money does equal more happiness. The caveat being, if you're working a stressful job to get the same amount of money, it doesn't make you necessarily happier. So if you're making $500,000 a year in a job that you hate, that you're working 80 hours a week, that you're not gonna be happier than the guy who's working a chill job like five hours a week, making 60 grand a year. Probably not, you're not gonna be that much happier. I think you have to adjust for other factors too, but all the things, I guess, adjusted equal, it looks like um, more money does lead to a happier overall um, life. Uh, at least we perceive that we're having a better life, which is interesting. I forgot the question now, but, uh, oh, uh, as I was coming out of that study, I was looking at some other articles, just I was in that mindset. And what you notice is that when you survey, survey people as their income increases, circling back to the question you said, would you ever think about having your own town? Yes, is the short answer. Yes, I would love to have my own town. That'd be so cool. And someday I'll get there. We're like, I, I would love to, have, to be, I've always thought it's best to be the biggest fish in the pond than be a minnow in a giant ocean, right? You want to be, setting the market and, and being in control, it's just a much better, um, I think it's more relaxing. I think psychologically it's it's better. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'm a competitive person, right? So if I am if I tie myself to, and I see other fish in the, in the, let's say you put me in a bigger ocean, I'll just grow to the size of my tank. And so I think it would force me to be better with my, like spend more time with family, focus on other aspects of my life that are important. If, um, if I contain myself to a smaller pond, so to speak. So I think it actually forces me to value things other than financial because I'm a competitive person. Someone else is making more than me. I'll try to, I'll be like, hey, I'm as smart as that person. I'm as hardworking as that person. I can now achieve that person. And I'll just do that. Like I do that now. I set targets on people that I follow, you know, they're, they're outperforming me. And I'm like, geez, I can outperform that person. And, and I go and do it, right? And I force myself to work harder than I need to, so. But anyway, um, reading through that article, it's interesting if you survey people as they start earning over a million dollars a year. So once you're like significantly over a million dollars a year, what you find is that most people sole focus is how to change the world. So you go from like focused on you and your family to having impact on people in your circle to then saying like, how can I change the world? The mentality shifts as soon as you get that level of wealth, people start focusing on how can I impact the political events? How can I control the media? How can I have major impacts on the world? How can I, you know, have major significant changes on my community. And so people start, they wanna, it's like about influence. It's about leaving your mark on the world. And so that's something that I've realized as I've built more and more wealth is that, yeah, I wanna have, I wanna leave my mark on the world. And I don't know, I mean, it's, it's very likely that at my current growth trajectory, even if I could maintain like a 14 or 15% growth rate, which is again, pretty high, but with leverage, it's, it's quite possible. Like if you're levered four to one on a stock like Enbridge that pays seven or eight percent dividend, you're doing 25% a year in dividends with leverage at 3% cost of debt. You're earning over a 20% annual return. That's assuming no appreciation. The utility company just stays flat if it appreciates bonus, but you're just in it for the dividends and they've got like 50 years of no dividend cuts. So it's likely the dividends will continue to pay out at that level or, or better. Um, but you can get great returns with leverage. So leverage is a key piece to building wealth as you get wealthier. 
you need to use other people's money, specifically the bank's money at like two or 3%. And that's something that I think is a big piece of growing. But um, if I just keep growing, I'll be a billionaire in my life. Like I sat down and I'm like doing a long-term financial planning from like now to like 70. And at age 70, like it's an extremely likely scenario I end up a billionaire. Guys like me, Kevin, like you guys following me, Kevin, like Kevin's fantastic. I've been, I've been friends with Kevin for a couple of years now. I watched his channel grow from like 5,000 subscribers. Like we were hanging out here in London when he came down a long time ago. And I've been watching his recent video he put out. I don't watch all his content because he produces so much amazing content. I don't have time for it. But I saw one on net worth and I was watching his and his net worth is like 45 million plus a brand player with 20 million. He's got $65 million. That's like, to have a net worth that high is crazy when his net worth is probably like 5 million two years ago. So the growth he's seen is insane. But even if he just maintains a 15% growth rate on what he has, Kevin will be a billionaire in his life. It's very likely. Even if he just like takes his foot off the gas and just invests passively, he'll probably grow to, to a billion. So it's crazy. Like a lot of us in the space, like who have all has some success in the last five years, talking to people like that and thinking about the impact we can have. Like we actually have the potential in our life to have major impact because we have time on our side. It's crazy. Um, just, just wild. Um, those kind of crazy thoughts and stuff, but good things to have, good, good thoughts to have and uh, blessed to be having those thoughts. You know, five years ago, I was thinking about, what was it? Four years ago, I retired. So four years ago, I quit my corporate job. At the time I had, what, 15, 16 properties coming out of 2016 into early 2017. And at the time, my only focus was, can I provide for my family? Will I run out of money or will my daughter be able to grow up and, and grow to a great school, et cetera, and so forth. So it's crazy how the mindset's changed in four years how much my mindset's changed, how much I've grown as an individual and almost a third kid coming out in a month. That's crazy. I'm going to be a dad to three kids. It's wild. And a dog and everything else. Got the whole, the whole uh, white picket fence, you know, vision. Okay. Um, hopefully the internet's going smoother tonight. I actually went and I have Bell and Rogers in my house. I just got both internets. I'm like, Bell sucks. Rogers sucks. And I get both the gigabit Rogers and the Bell have both lines coming in. So it should be smoother tonight on the Wi-Fi. I'm literally paying for a second internet connection just so when I stream or do things, I'm not lagging out. I Nothing infuriates me more than lag or buffering. And I'm like, I work too hard and I make too much money to be messing around trying to upload things. I just get a second internet connection. And you guys know it's me, it's Frugal Mike. I got the internet for 60% off negotiated a deal. It's regular 120 bucks a month. I got it for 40. No, 50, 49.99. So boy, Rosehart still knows how to be frugal. Get that value. Hey Mike, how much can I expect to make when you buy a private business? If you had 300,000 liquid, well, Chad, that depends on so many factors. There's no, you know, how much can you expect to make? You could make nothing. You could lose money. You could double your money, right? It just depends on what you're buying. And if you're using leverage, like $300,000 could buy you a million dollar business. You put 30% down, right? If you bought the right business, it, you could buy for, you could refinance it and have no money in the business, right? So I've seen all those kinds of things happen in the business world. I think that it comes down to the type of business you're buying. Um, what's your plan to create a lift or create a value add? You have to do something to the business in some way to you know, get a, a lift on your money. Hi Mike, what bank would you recommend if you were to leave TD? Well, Kent, I'm not with TD. I mean, I have a, I have a lot of credit at TD, but TD is not the bank that I that I bank with. Um, my favorite bank is from a, a joint venture banking perspective. If you're trying to joint venture with people and set up a lot of accounts for each property, I like Bank of Montreal. 
they all have 20 bank accounts for free under one lead plan account. So I have a bank account for every single property. It's nice and clean, um, or I used to. Now it's gotten a lot messier. I should go in and clean that up. But at one point I had a bank account for every property. And um, yeah, it was, um, they're, they're fantastic. Bank of Montreal is, is my favorite. Their hours suck, um, their customer service, it's hit or miss. Um, depends on the branch you go into, but their their apps okay, and I like that they have twenty bank accounts included, and they include everything, so drafts, whatever, as long as you keep a minimum balance of like five grand in your account, I think it is. So that's the great thing about Bank of Montreal. Uh, from a mortgages perspective, Scotiabank is the best by far. They're my favorite. CIBC is a close second, and then probably RBC is next. TD is the worst for mortgages. They're the least aggressive. They hate student rentals. They always want 25% down. Their, their rates aren't as competitive, I found, and their lending procedures, I just never had any success really at TD. I've had one mortgage ever from TD. Um, so I just haven't had the same success at TD. That might just be me, but um, yeah, I mean, I like BMO, Scotia, and uh, TDs are good hours. That's about the only thing about TD that I like. If I really need, to, I have a bank account there or a line of credit it's a hack to get a free bank account. If you keep a line of credit open, there's no monthly fee. You can use it whenever you want. And uh, you just pay for the interest that you use on it. But if you preload it, then it costs you nothing. So it's like having a bank account there that's free. Uh, but if they're if they're open late, right? So that's the advantage there. Do you recommend private banking? Oh, I think I missed a question. There we go. Hi, Mike, do you recommend private banking? Yes, I 100% recommend private banking. No holds on drafts up to like 100 grand. Um, free banking, no matter what. The wiring fees are almost nothing. It, fantastic. The customer service you get uh, as a private banking client, way better. You go into your, your unsecured lines of credits, the rates drop in half. On like Right there, it's worth it alone. So private banking, yes, 100%, only way to go. Um, retail, like being at the retail level, when you walk in, the tellers just don't treat you the same level of customer service. And then how do you find you meet mentors and people that create opportunities? You know, I don't know, um, just in the wild, like through people, uh, people connect me with people. That's sort of, honestly, I've been looking for a really good mentor. It's at that next stage. Someone who's, you know, got 10 years ahead of where I, 10 years of where I want to be. So that person's got like hundred million net worth or something, right? And finding those people is hard. And it's even harder to get them to want to talk to you. So yeah, I, I wish I had a mentor right now that was at that level that could really give me advice. And the problem is too, with mentors at that level is like, even now I don't give great advice. I probably wouldn't give great advice to my, to my five year before self. The mentality I needed to get where I am today is different than the mentality that I have now. Like the mentality that I have now wouldn't work in the stage I was at then. You know what I mean? Does that make sense guys? It's, you have to go through paradigm shifts and mentality shifts and mindset shifts as you level up. You, the, the mentality of the 100 million net worth guy, that mentality doesn't work when you've only got a, you know 500,000 or something, right? So you need, to, you need to level up your game depending on where you're at. So as an example, I used to have a really scarcity mindset, frugal mindset when I was just starting out at 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, when I was building my real estate empire. That frugality built me to what I am today. Like I scraped and saved and you know, 5,000 here, 5,000 there on job costs and renovations and stuff and whatever. That scraped together gave me one more rental property. And that rental property is doubled in value. So I've made that $5,000 frugal hack that saved me five grand, the multi, you know, the hundred millionaire is gonna be like, whatever. It's not gonna care about the five grand. 
but that five grand turned into 250,000 today. So it's got, I got 10,000% return on that today. So I needed that mentality back then to build the foundation so that I could grow into what I am today. So it's, I don't know, it's tough. I need to find them. I do need to find a mentor. It's tough to find good mentors in that space. Next question. William says, Mike, what are your thoughts on whether we're in a bubble? Yeah, that's tough. It feels like we're in a bubble. Depends how you define it and what metrics you're looking at, but cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratios for US stock market is close to an all time high. Thank you for your thoughts. Well, William, one of the things that, so you're right, it feels like a bubble because price to earnings ratios are way out of whack. People are paying insane premiums on net, earn, net earnings for everything, for real estate, for businesses, for stocks, whatever. Um, most of that is driven by the lowest interest rate environment we've seen in history. We've never had debt as cheap as it is right now. And so what happens is as interest rates lower, the Bank of Canada or the, you know, the central banks, they force interest rates down. What that does is it increases valuations. So let's say you could borrow at 3% before and you could lever up five to one. Now you can borrow at 2%. Your, your cost of debt just went down 33%. So your valuation just got 33% better. So now because there's so much excess capital in the market, everyone pays 33% more for the exact same thing. Um, so that's what's happening is low interest rates are driving crazy high valuations. If interest rates go back to even 2019 levels, right? Um, that would have significant pullbacks on valuations for companies. So something to think about. Do you think that the government will pull back on interest rates as our economy kind of W-shape recovers? I don't know. It depends how this COVID um, pandemic pays out, plays out. Um, it's like my play on words there. I got catch my drift. Um, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did. If I did, I would just be loading up on, on options <laughs> to the moon. Right. But uh, I'm a very conservative investor. And I think that where valuations don't make sense, I just, I stay away. I'm not bullish enough to short it. I'm not, um, bearish enough to, um, to short it. I'm not bull enough to, um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, I forgot what I was saying there. My, my brain went into another space in my place. I think that one of the things related to this bubble is just being cognizant that we don't know when the top is, right? So if the government lowered interest rates further, if something else happened that was a positive catalyst, we could see things go even higher. And so sitting in cash is a dangerous proposition when they're printing as much money as they are. And um, I don't know. You lose if you stay in cash. You lose if you buy the overvalued stuff. So just try to find the value plays that still exist in the market because there are still value plays and then park your money there. For me, that's finding, you know, a quarter of my, my wealth is in real estate still at least. So part of that is, is parked in real estate. Part of that is um, trading safely on options. Like as an example, you can set up a spread, spread trading is great because you can protect your upside and your downside. So you, you cap out how much you can make, but you cap out how much you can lose. So basically if the stock just stays within a band range, you're okay. Uh, you don't, you just make money no matter what, as long as it stays within the range. So that's something that, um, that I think is an interesting proposition right now. You can make some, some good money there and make sure you don't lose money or lose too much money.
Oh, we just got a super chat. I'm scrolling down to the super chat here. Derek says, would it be okay for me to film a short documentary about you? Derek, I'm open to the concept. I could, we could talk about it. Depends on your angle, um, what you're trying to shoot. If you're trying to paint me as a, uh, a capitalist pig, then no. Um, it depends on your, on your angle and what you want to do with it. But sure, I, I could be open to chatting about it for sure. There's, there's so many places where I think that, um, in just in general, this channel could benefit a ton from someone editing videos and me sitting down and shooting some more content. It's something I want to do. I've been approached by people who want to create courses with me too. They're like, hey, Mike, you have so much knowledge. Can we just like film you for like two days and build a course around this topic or that topic? And we'll help sell it for you. We'll market it. We'll do it all for you. And you just split the profit with us and let us make a business around you and just suck the knowledge out of your brain. And I was like, I'm not opposed to that. Um, so long as I can do it with a limited amount of capital input and a limited amount of my time input, if I don't have to spend a whole bunch of time into it, then I'm open to those opportunities for sure. But if this is just like a for charity thing too, I'm totally open to having a, a chat about it. The place to find me would be um, on Instagram, I'm Mike Rosard. And if you don't have Instagram, then find my email and send me an email that way. But yeah, let's um, let's connect. I'm open to, to chatting about it for sure. Next question. Do, 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 do. I think I answered William's thoughts for the most part on that. That my thoughts were basically, I don't know what the top is. You know, I thought we were in a, a top in, in 2019, to be honest. And what happened with COVID, low interest rates has has created some crazy valuations, especially in the tech space. And in the EV electric car space too, there's some crazy valuations right now. So there's some spaces that I would stay out of. Um, there are tons of places where there's value. Like as an example, travel, it's gonna come back in a big way and beat up a ton. So there are areas where I think that there you could value companies and they aren't trading at all time highs. So it depends on the sector. Um, you gotta remember that like, when you look at a bubble of an average, there's still value opportunities to be found. And so I would, I would look for those. And if you do think things are overvalued, you think for instance, interest rates might creep back up as the economy rebounds, which is likely, um, how's that gonna play out, right? And so think through where the opportunities will be as interest rates might rise a little bit. So as an example, real estate is not, doesn't do very well when interest rates rise. You gotta be careful in what you're buying. So that's why cash flow is so important and fixing in your debt is so important now when interest rates are at all time lows. Ben says, do you believe in God? Yes, I do actually believe in God. Financial investor says, Sup, Mike? Hey, how's it going? Good to see you on. It's been a while actually since I've seen you pop into the chat. Good to see you back on the channel. Hope your channel's doing well too. Alex says, In rural town outside of Chicago, 7,000 people here for the next two and a half years, living in a house hack duplex. Should I refi and move to another house hack or funnel the funds into higher appreciation areas? Alex, thanks. Um, that's tough, right? Because you've got to decide when you say high appreciation areas, there's been small, crazy small towns here in COVID that have appreciated 30% around me. There's like hick towns, like 30 minutes outside of nowhere that have gone up 30% in value because everyone's looking to move out of the major cities and those areas are affordable. And so they've jumped in prices in ways that I never thought possible. Toronto appreciation's up 10%, population of like what, five, six million more? And then small towns of 30,000 people or 10,000 people even, have appreciated faster than the major metropolitan areas. Areas like New York have had some, some pullback, right? 
Vancouver. So some of the major metropolitans don't appreciate as fast as you might think. Um, as a percentage, sometimes the smaller towns do better. And I think when the government's printing a ton of money, that should be a boon for smaller towns. So I'm actually, if you're living in the town, I think there's some good, good logic to buying property in the town that you live in because you have a competitive advantage. You're already there. You know the market. There's not a lot of competition. If I lived in a small town, if I was you, I'd be buying in that small town because I'd have a competitive advantage there and a lot less competition. Definitely, I would say pull the money out of your house, refine it, and put it to work on another property. Remember the age-old saying, one property paid off is the same amount of equity as five properties at 20% down. I see my finger. I smashed um, the weight bar on it, like destroyed my finger. It's all bruised up. Um, yeah, so my, my thoughts there are leverage is king. Five properties with five mortgages on them, a 20% down will produce way more cash flow and way more net appreciation and way more mortgage pay down than one property paid down all the way. You'll end up with a lot less net cash flow from one property with no mortgage. Um, you have way more cash flow from five properties at 20% down. So, next question. Any thoughts on pulling out home equity on a mortgage-free house at these low interest rates and buying high dividend stocks like Enbridge, Pembina, Atco? Yeah, so I currently hold Enbridge, I hold Pembino. Um, yeah, so I, I uphold things in all those um, high dividend yield stocks. I have good dividend portfolio set up. Um, my dividend portfolio is set up for this year. My target is 300,000 in dividend income. Um, that's just like a passive bank that's set on the side. Um, and so, yeah, I, I built a portfolio of some great high dividend uh, yield type stocks and I have levered my house up. I went and borrowed. Well, with appreciation, my house is probably levered like I don't know, 65% loan to value right now, which is not as good as I would like. I'd love it to be 80% loan to value. But again, the last year and a year and a bit, we've seen quite a bit of appreciation. So it's hard to go refinance your house every year, right? The bank's like, what are you doing? Coming back for another refinance? Um, but yeah, I would totally take the money out of your house. Put it against, you know, companies like, you know, whatever, Enbridge, Pembino. Um, I think that uh, if you get a five or six or 7% yield and borrow at 2%, if you can do that with $100,000, then your spread on that is like, what, four grand for every 100,000 you borrow a year. So that's like three, 400 bucks in your pocket every month that you didn't have before. Plus, now your mortgage becomes tax deductible against those, um, those dividend gains or dividend um, payments. So yeah, totally, I'm for that 100%. Any appreciation that happens on that stock is it's just bonus. David says, did you and Kevin play RuneScape together? <laughs> David, no, I used to play RuneScape, but we didn't play together, actually. Um, interestingly, Kevin and I both used to play RuneScape, both used to play World of Warcraft um, and all that, but uh, similar personality styles in that way, I think. Although I will say this, like Kevin is a savage when it comes to work. Like he, his work ethic is like leagues above what mine is right now. Guy gets up at like five in the morning to focus on videos, I'm like five in the morning till two. I'm laying in bed snoozing at 10. I'm like hitting snooze on my phone. Um, I do not have the grind or the hustle that I used to have. It's just not there. Now I work smarter. I don't work harder. I focus on high value. You know, I, I have like four or five hours of good work that I get done in the day between my family, my kids and everything. I don't know how how Kevin does it, to be honest. It's it's tough. I, I, try, I try to get like, a four hour work day done. The four hour work week is like the to is the target, right? Whereas I think with Kevin, it's just like, he loves what he does so much that he just throws himself into it. I don't have that same passion for 
you know, I'm chasing a deal. Sometimes I can get that same passion going or, you know, if I'm making a really like a great stock trade or something, then I might have that same energy. Or I'm buying like a really great business and I'm excited about the financials. But day to day, I, I don't have the energy to, to chase the way he does. I mean, props to him, seriously. He's gonna go places. My dream yes says, how can I invest the 60,000 I saved over the last two years? What's the safest way to invest the money? Well, the safest way to invest it is to put it in a savings account and collect your 3% interest, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I think that um, we talk about risk to reward. You wanna look for the arbitrage opportunities. So you have to decide what level of risk are you comfortable with? So you said safest means you're, you probably don't wanna take a huge amount of risk. So you're looking in the low risk category. I consider personally private mortgages low risk, especially where I'm 75% loan to value. So where a property's worth 100 grand, I'm lending 70,000 against it in first secured position. So if anyone puts any further securities on it, I'm in first position. So my 70 grand is safe against the $100,000 sale price. So if the market pulls back 20% and housing crashes, you know, $80,000 houses start selling for, um, or $100,000 houses start selling for 80,000, 75,000, my money's still safe, right? I consider that to be a very low risk investment. I think it's as safe as buying government bonds or having money in a savings account. I think it's in that level of risk. And in that space, in the private lending space, you can get seven, eight, nine, 10%, 11% type returns. And the chance of losing money is very, very low. So that I think is a, is a unicorn in the low risk category. In the higher risk categories, I think there's things you can do with options trading that produce returns. If you use leverage, you options trade with leverage, like on margin, then you can make some ridiculous returns. Like people are doing four and 5% on safe high pop trades, like high probability of profit trades, where your downside's super limited. Like if the stock you know, does nothing, the stock goes up or it goes down, you make money. Like you can play in a spread space where as long as it stays within a certain range, you make money, right? Or you play, you, you, sell, op you sell put options as an example on stocks. Like as an example, I, I hold Enbridge. It's one of the companies that I own. Um, and they pay a healthy dividend. I believe in the company long-term. All of the properties here in Ontario have to buy their gas to heat their house from Enbridge, we're on every single month, we're on contract, they get paid. I feel really good about investing in a utility company like that because there is no alternative. <laughs> they have a monopoly. All of my rental properties have to keep the heat on, can't turn it off, right? Gas prices just keep going up. They make a good profit. They collect a healthy um, delivery charge to every home. And so that's a, a business that I think is solid and will be there for a long time. So as an example, if I was gonna buy Enbridge shares to collect a dividend, at the same time, I would sell a put. And when you sell a put, you're basically selling insurance on that stock. And the idea is that you, if the stock goes you know, wildly down, you get to buy shares in Enbridge, which you wanted anyway for a lesser price, which is sweet. Um, if it goes way up, well, guess what? You just got paid a premium to sell an options contract and that just reduced your cost base on the shares that you are gonna go buy anyway. So you can never lose. It's, um, there's a good book on that that Derek Foster wrote. He claims he's the earliest retiree, but he's not. Right here, he retired in like his 30s, come on. Someone reach out to Derek Foster and say, hey, you need to talk to my grocer, he's the youngest early retiree. Uh, but no, he wrote a great book. He's wrote a couple good books, but uh, I read it earlier this year in January. Um, someone recommended it to me, it's called uh, Money for Nothing. And it talks about a strategy where you buy high yield dividends and you basically just sell um, puts on whatever you wanna buy and it's just reduce your cost base. So you can use options to reduce the cost base on uh, stuff you wanna own anyway in your stock portfolio. So that's why I trade options. I'm not taking huge risks. I'm not making huge gambles, huge bets. There are opportunities to do that, but it's just not the space I play in. I like to keep my risk low. Kent just sent me a super chat. 
Thank you, Kent. Uh, Kent says, I would like to buy a property right now to use up some cash, but I'm scared about dealing with tenants. Is there a way to solve this? Because I need cash flow. Hmm, Kent, there are lots of ways to get cash flow. It doesn't have to be from real estate. You could, as an example, lend against someone who buy, find someone who wants to buy a flip or a property and provide a mortgage to them at 10, 12% interest rate for a flipper, they might pay that. And you get a percent a month. So you put 200 grand into a private mortgage. Instead of buying a property, you put 200 grand into a private mortgage and you'd make $2,000 a month in straight profit with no hassle. Another option is you could JV with someone. JV is joint venture. If you joint venture with someone, you say, hey, I'll provide the capital, but you're the, you're the active partner. You go and you deal with the tenants. I don't want the tenants to have my number. I don't want them to know that I own this property. I don't even want them to know I'm involved. At the end of the day, you deposit the profit. You handle all the problems. You put the deposit, deposit the profit into our joint bank account. We split it. We have a good time. That's basically what um, what I think is the end game. If you have money, that's like the, the goal is to be either the lender or the silent equity partner. Those are both options. Uh, another option is you find a really good property manager and you say, hey, look, you take care of this property. And maybe you factor in that like property managers aren't going to care about the property as much as you, but guess what? The property manager is going to deal with the tenants. They're going to have the number. They're going to contact that property manager. You tell the property manager, you don't contact me ever unless there's something over 500 bucks. I don't want to know about it. And then it's really passive, right? And if you can build up a good amount of trust with that property manager and they're actually good, then if you build in, say, Hey, maybe 20% less profitability because you have a property manager in place, then it could make sense. So run the different scenarios and see what makes sense. But I personally don't deal with any of my tenants. I have it all outsourced to someone else, a property manager guy um, or two. A couple is actually ideal. You don't wanna have it all your eggs in one basket. Ideally, you wanna spread it out a little bit. That would be my recommendation. In case one property manager company fails, maybe you have a second property manager company for the other property and kind of split it up. So um, I just saw something pop up. So it's Money for Nothing by Derek Foster. The, it's a good basic entry level book. Like there's. There's nothing complex in the book at all. Like, I think I read the whole book in a day. Like it's super, super simple read. If you're brand new to options trading, he doesn't really cover options trading. He only talks about selling puts. So he doesn't talk about selling calls, just selling puts in the book and buying dividend yielding stocks. And he has two other books that kind of go with it. So it's a good entry level book for someone who's kind of new to the space. Um, if you want to learn about options, my favorite online free course is go to Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade has a great beginner course that my friend Brandon actually sent me and I just finished it now. Um, it's, it's refreshing me back to all the things from my, my uh, education at, at uh, Ivy. And again, I'm so rusty, to be honest. I haven't you know, traded options in a long time. So I'm getting back into it just because a lot of peers that I've been talking to lately have been doing 4 and 5% annual returns, just options trading. And I'm like, I'm as smart as these guys. I, I can do this. So I'm going to get into it in a big way coming up shortly here. I got a, a bunch of cash coming my way from the sale of a couple of properties. And so I'm going to play and I'll let you guys, as that money comes in, I'll let you guys know how it goes with my little, I'm just going to put a million bucks aside and options trade for fun with a million bucks. And I guess interactive brokers will probably give me another million in margin. So it'll be like 2 million bucks. I'll be playing with doing a little bit of options trading just, just for fun on the side. And so I'll let you guys know how that goes. If I, you know, lose money or double money, it's whatever it's money I've set aside to, to have fun with. And I'll document that on the channel so you guys can follow along with uh, what I'm doing when I'm trading and stuff. I gotta go in about five minutes here, so I'll do a couple more questions. It's my second daughter's bedtime, my second eldest. I gotta say goodnight to her, so. Uh, I think I was somewhere around here on William, maybe? If I missed your question, by the way, just put it in the comments 
and I'll answer it after the show. Uh, what book would you recommend to go into joint venture investing? I don't know if I have a good book for that. Check out biggerpockets.com. They probably have a, a forum or something on that topic. Mike, do you find better deals on private businesses compared to real estate? Did you join the Rotary Club or how do you like network with small business owners? Thank you. William, I actually used to be part of the London chapter um, Rotary Network when I was in university. So small world, I actually used to go to the, the weekly lunch, but no, um, it's a good idea. I should start networking in that way again too. But no, um, the, the connections I've had have just been through friends, through brokers that I knew, that kind of thing. Um, Again, I've only been involved in like two businesses, right? So like, I haven't bought a ton of businesses, but um, I'd like to buy more. I'd like to be more of the Dragon General. For real estate, like I look at each property as like a business, right? Like the sixplex I just picked up is like a business in and of itself. And so I've done a lot of those kind of business deals, right? Those property deals. Yeah, so I would love to buy more private businesses. They're just tough to find. And I've come across maybe 50 opportunities. And I think... You guys know, two, I've only taken advantage of two opportunities of 50. So I guess that's a 4% probability of the business meeting all the metrics. We came really close on a third business um, in Toronto. It was a really cool, um, they were like a, a fasteners business. They they made like bolts and things. It was really cool. Like they, um, they basically were a distributor of those things. They had a warehouse and stuff. It was a really cool business. Had a lot of potential, but they just had a lot of risk factor that I wasn't able to stomach and was in a sinking industry that I didn't feel comfortable and I was worried about the owner stepping away and then who could I put in place to run things that's the challenge right so another thing is when you buy businesses you have to bet on people and if you're not gonna do it yourself you have to find someone who has that hunger that energy you can put into the COO role who will run things right and you probably want to give them a stake in the company too so they have the same interest aligned to yours but finding that person to help you run that private business you're buying is just as hard as finding the business opportunity. In fact, probably harder to find the person. It's all about finding that pe that person. So if you're that person, reach out. You know, any, any people out there that wanna, they're in the London area that wanna buy businesses, reach out. Um, if you're a hardworking person, maybe there's an opportunity. It's good to know those people and to, I, I'd have to really know the person before I get into bed with them. A, a message wouldn't be enough. I have to really get to know them. I have to go to a lot of, a lot of dinner dates. DHowTo says, during the last live stream, we were talking about home equity line of credit. Have you ever used a home equity line of credit? I know you have to pay the money back, but what's the maximum length of time to pay the loan back? Uh, yeah, I used to have a HELOC on my house before I refinanced. I had a HELOC. And um, the HELOC, as far as I knew, had no, um, there's no repayment date. Like there was a limit. I, I think in my case, it was like 300 and something thousand that I could borrow at any time. And if I paid it down, I paid no interest. But if I drew it down, then I paid it interest at like prime plus a half or something. And there was a minimum payment that I had to make based on how much I withdrew. It was mostly interest only. There was almost no, maybe a tiny bit of principal, but it wasn't much. So I, I think for the most part, you don't have to pay it back. You can just keep it drawn down. And the payments are pretty much interest only in most cases. There are obviously variations that different lenders I'm sure have come up with, but yeah. What would you do with $15,000 now? Can I go be your understudy in Canada? <laughs> Derek, I, I wish that there was an opportunity for that. The challenge with mentorship, and I've done lots of mentorship. In fact, I have two, I have Brandon and I have um, Jonas, who are the original, uh, well, Jonas is the original mentee from a year and a half, almost 
think a year and a half, more than that. Um, and so it's just been maybe come up on two years now, the spring, I guess, almost two years. Um, and so I did get a lot of time to them, right? And so that dedication of time is a lot on my part and I don't get a lot out of it. So just right now with everything going on in my life, I don't wanna take on anyone new unless the fit was just perfect. Um, and I didn't have to dedicate much time. I have to think about that. I have a room here, like I don't use this room at all. I could just, I have an upstairs office I could shoot the YouTube from. So if the right person ever came along, I've got a room down here that's got massive floor to ceiling windows and stuff on the walkout basement that could be a good mentee room. Um, I don't know, maybe there's an opportunity for that, for the right person, I don't know. But right now I, just a lot of time commitment. D how to says how it started equals Mike Rosart was fire, how it's going, Mike Rosart is Lux fire. Yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up. That's the same though with all of us fire people, like Graham, Stefan, you know, meet Kevin, myself, there's like four or five other influencers that I could name off that all of us were like versions of fire and um, we're all like Lux fire now, right? So it's, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's blessed. We've been blessed in the market to to have worked hard and had our you know our hard work pay off. Uh, max length of time to pay back HELOC. We did that. The fifteen thousand. I don't know what you'd invest the fifteen thousand in. Maybe lending would be an easy way to to keep it working. You could do options trading with that fifteen grand because you could margin, so you could uh, get a little more buying power of that. I think options trading would probably be the best place to to start. If you can really get familiar with selling options on companies you don't mind owning. So solid, you know, in my case, I like solid utility type companies like solid dividend paying, big banks, blue chip stuff um, that you wouldn't mind owning shares in long-term, then you might sell insurance on those. And if you end up owning the shares at the end of the day, because the trade goes bad, you end up having to buy the shares then that's fine. You get to own shares in companies that you wind on anyway. And if you don't, if you're wrong, then you get paid, you get paid insurance. Um, so it's pretty cool to be the insurer. I think it's a great way to make a good return on your money, but 15,000 isn't a lot of money anyway. Like even if you could get, let's say you get 1% return a month, that's still on 15 grand is what? 150 bucks. Like it's nothing. It's, it's not enough to really care. What you're invested in isn't as important as saving for the future and, and building that future earning potential, I think is more important now than what you're invested in. Just invest in something, have it compound and start growing. Would you continue to invest in real estate or the stock market? If you had money in the market and real estate, should you private lend? Um, I'm investing in all of the four categories. You guys know that, that I have a four pillar wealth strategy and so i've diversified a ton if you noticed i'm still probably a little heavy on real estate but i've been pushing a lot into you know stocks into you know businesses into lending into other categories um, that are not real estate necessarily and i think that's smart i think it's you'll notice as you build more wealth in the first million bucks you have you can go all out in one thing but once you start building wealth i think it's important to spread it around into different categories what if one area tanks you want to be diversified and protected Wealth's appreciating like crazy, that's true. People are able to afford because Toronto influx paired with low interest rates. It's totally true, Will. 
We're seeing the same thing in London, Ontario. One thing to consider in small towns, speaking from experience, is that there's minimal competition and options for property managers and contractors. Stu, that's, that sounds true. Could you potentially bring someone in? If there was no other um, property manager, could you train someone to do it? Um, could you find a contractor who could be your property manager on the side and you could build systems so it's mostly automated? Property management can be automated pretty easily so that the, the person that has on the fridge, three contractors they call in an event of emergency, an email they email if they have a property management concern, rent automatically paid. So you really only need someone to show the unit, lease it, and once in a while you could do by email have someone correspond. It shouldn't take more than an hour a month of property once you have things systematized. Uh, did you go to college or learn everything on your own? Benjamin, I did go to um, an Ivy League school here in Canada. I did a four-year degree in, in finance and accounting and economics, but most of what I know today is not from that degree. I know lots of people that went in the same program as me, studied the same degree, and don't know, um, don't know half of what I do about economics or whatever, right? So there's, there's definitely, I think, um, a lot of real-world learning that built me to where I am today, for sure. Uh, most of what I know in real estate and what I've studied is not from what I learned in school, but from what I learned in real life or on Google. Oh, it's kind of a super chat from Derek. Okay, let's say 150K. Yeah, I mean, um, 150K is a bit more money. So then now it's probably, depending on what your time is worth per hour, like if you're making 20 bucks an hour at a regular job, then 150 grand could be invested to have a substantial impact on your, uh, your overall earnings for the year. And so then it becomes more important what you're investing in. 150K, you could put to work in private. It, it depends on how much time you want to dedicate to helping that money grow. So as an example, if you wanna give 150 grand, I'll get to your question. If I missed it, I'm sorry. Real estate is one of the easiest things to learn. Thank you, that wasn't a comment, but yeah, I mean, real estate is super easy to learn. You get involved and you start doing it and you buy property and you figure out property management, but there are different levels of complexity. I can hear the, the sass in that comment. Jeez, I almost wanna ignore it, but I'm gonna address it just because of what you just brought up there. Um, and I didn't ignore it on purpose. I'm just jumping around trying to get the, the best questions. And I promise I'll, chant, I'll answer how, uh, Derek, how you'd get um, 150K maximally invested. And again, there'll be lots of options depending on your personality and how much time you want to invest, et cetera, um, and your risk profile. But yeah, I mean, if, if basic level buying a property, renting it out, that's easy. Where it gets more complex is trying to build a, a large portfolio at scale, right? So doing you know, a $20 million real estate portfolio, that takes a level of skill or to build systems to get to that level. So I realized that what I knew owning 10 properties, that was table, that was like table stakes or easy compared to what I needed to know to execute a deal a week. Like in 2019, when we did, I bought a property a week, 52 weeks straight. By the end, when I was closing six, seven, eight, nine deals in one week, where I was inheriting dozens of tenants in a week, you need good systems and you need to understand how to run a business. So. Yes, real estate can be easy, but there's a lot of people who get into it and say it's hard. And it might be easy to you know, collect rent, but when you're dealing with all of the landlord-tenant board issues and you're dealing with trying to evict tenants, and you're doing huge renovation projects and you're fighting with the bank for financing, you're trying to figure out how to you know, keep your JV partners happy and how to raise capital and how to find deals at 70 cents on the dollar and send out mailers. And you basically there's a, a business to acquire real estate unless you're just buying at market value, in which case, you're not really executing well in real estate, you're just buying something. 
Um, but to be a good executor in real estate and buy properties at 60, 70 cents on the dollar, that takes skill. To manage your portfolio well takes skill. Eight out of 10 property managers are garbage. Eight out of 10 landlords are trash. They just don't make a lot of profit because they're not good at managing their properties. Um, so if the majority of people suck at it, it, there must be something to it because so many people are failing at doing it well. So I think there is something there in real estate executing well. And you can ask any property manager, any you know advanced landlord with you know a couple hundred units that I think there's something there to um, to it. But the last question is going to be Derek's because he's super chatted. So 150 grand depends on your risk profile, right? So if you had a a lot of appetite for risk and you had a lot of time on your hands, like let's say you're unemployed, you could take 150 grand and you could invest in a property that needs a lot of fixing up, a lot of time and love. Let's say it's got bad tenants you got to you know fight with and you know they're doing crack out back and the property's all in distress. You can get in there and spend a thousand hours. Literally, I've had properties that have taken a thousand hours of my time when I start now getting them turned around. And you put a thousand hours of your time in and you could turn your 150 grand into 300 grand over a year's period of time. You, it basically like you're investing a year's work into this property and your payout is like 150 grand salary. And so in which case you might look at the ROI on that and be like, wow, I got a hundred percent return on investment. But if you look at the time you input, you're like, oh, well, maybe I got 50,000 in return and a hundred thousand for my time. So it's less attractive to someone like me who doesn't have any time to spare. That investment would be a bad one. Like I would want to invest in something for 150 grand that's going to turn into 300 if I've got to put a year's time into it. But someone who's just starting out who doesn't have valuable, if their time isn't that valuable yet, that's a great proposition. You might be like, wow, I can take 150 grand and turn it into 300 on a great real estate distressed deal. That sounds like a great opportunity. I'm willing to jump in, you know, knees deep in all the drama and the stress and, you know, fix this property up and fight with contractors and just turn this whole property around. I'm willing to go through all of that stress to make that sort of return. And so that that's where you could buy real estate and it can make a lot of sense or buy a private business and turn the business around and make a lot of money that way. Those both require a lot of work and a level of, I think some level of skill at least to execute decently well. Um, it could go extremely wrong. Two people can go into the exact same deal in real estate and one person buys it for 150, and I've seen this happen, and drives the property into the ground and sells the property for 140 after a year. Like they lost 10 grand. The other person buys the exact same property, turns it all around, turns them into awesome units, gets it all rented for top dollar, and sells the property for 300 grand. The exact same property. Execution was the difference between 140,000 sale price and 300,000 sale price. You can turn a building around and, and add units and add bedrooms and bathrooms and make it better than it was before, or you could leave it as a, a crap hole a crack house, you know what I mean? So it's all about how you run things and how you turn things around. So it's that's where I talk about appetite for risk and time investment. But if you want something completely passive, that's an easy return, that doesn't require any level of studying or knowledge, private lending. Like go give someone a mortgage on a property. Go reach out to some real estate networking groups and say, hey, I'm looking to lend a first mortgage, 75% loan to value on an appraisal. Find someone to get an appraisal on the property, lend 75% loan to value on set appraisal. You're relatively safe. The market drops 10, 20%, you're okay. They screw something up on the property, it gets sold, you get paid back. It's hard to lose your money doing private lending like that. Um, yeah, I think that um, at the end of the day, probably private lending is the safest, highest return, lowest risk. You can get 10, 12% lending to, to um, people who are in a pinch. So that's where I think it could be a good opportunity. Anyhow, um, Derek, I hope that answered your question. And uh, sorry I missed your other question there. Um, 
Imagine doing real estate and paying for college when you could have turned 50K into 47 million on GME option calls. You know, you can't look at that, right? You gotta think of the people, you gotta think of the other, for the one guy that made 57 million trading options, there was the other 99% that all lost a ton of money trading options on, on GME, right? On GameStop um, stock. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the premiums on, on GameStop right now have been and crazy. It's just been insane. It's hard not to make money on a stock like that because the extrinsic value is so high. Just remember, for all the people who made a ton of money in Tesla or Bitcoin or some crypto or trading crazy options, for that one person you hear that made a whole bunch of money, there's 99 people that lost their shirts. So you just gotta keep that in mind. And I do the same thing. I see these idiots making crazy money who are, who are not smart, who had no strategy, just got lucky. You gotta remember, luck is the most important thing in investing. And uh, you can't control luck. What you can control for is your work ethic, your knowledge, right? So you, you gotta build your knowledge up, you gotta build your experience, you gotta work hard, and probability will eventually be in your favor if you work hard, and you will eventually win the slow guarantee way. So that's the way I built wealth. I wish I'd been lucky enough to have a crazy investment like that, but I just did it one base hit at a time. I've done like, what, 75 deals, and every single one's been a slow base hit. I wish I, you know, did, Bitcoin back in the day. It would have been better than all my real estate portfolio combined, but I didn't have a crystal ball and I don't have a crystal ball now. So better to take the sure guaranteed approach. Anyway, my daughter's bedtime. I'm two minutes past. Thank you all so much for watching. For the 68 people that are watching right now live, smash the like button. And if you're watching on the replay, smash the like button for the algorithm. It helps the channel a ton. Uh, if I missed your question, sorry. I try to get all the questions. Sometimes I skip some. I'm not the most organized when it comes to scrolling on my phone through tiny font, a bunch of questions. If I missed your question, just copy it, paste it in the comments for everyone to see, and I'll answer it after. I answer all the comments on the videos after the fact. So thank you all so much for tuning in to tonight's live stream. I'll see you on Instagram, in my stories, at Mike Rosart, and I'll see you next week on the next Mike Rosart show. Remember, the secret to unlocking a wealthier you is three levers within your control. Spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Bye everyone. Happy Wednesday.